That to-do list you have needs one more thing. Chill. It's an easy thing to do. Just crack open an ice-cold Coors Light and chill. Take the afternoon off and binge watch anything. Go to happy hour and stay for a couple hours. Who's counting anyways? Or hang out with just your dog because you've had enough human interaction this week. Whatever you do, do it with a Coors Light. Mountain cold refreshment made to chill. 2020 Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast. A production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. Do you ever feel like you just can't catch a break? Do you know what I'm talking about? Are you nodding? Are you having one of those days? I think Oregon State probably feels right now like it can't have nice things. Or Oregon State's fans. They're watching football players jump into the transfer portal. They saw their football coach go off to Michigan State, act like uh, hey, it was just another job. The job he had at Oregon State at his alma mater. Announcing his assistant coaches, the former Beavers assistant coaches. You're watching all that, but you 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 know you kind of lean back if you're Oregon State right now, and you go, okay, okay, okay. You got baseball, and you got men's soccer. They're kicking butt, right? Taking names into the College Cup. Except uh, I broke a little news today on that front. Good news is that Oregon State's men's soccer program is in the College Cup. The bad news is is that the NCAA was on a conference call with Oregon State administrators this morning telling them that the Beavers used an ineligible player in the quarterfinals. Javier Armas got his eighth yellow card against SMU on November 25th, and that should have ruled him out for the quarterfinal match. He's a defender on the team. And the NCAA has imposed a penalty on Oregon State. They're allowing Oregon State to appeal it, so it's in the appeal process. But Armas and head coach Craig Dalby are facing a suspension tomorrow and potentially Monday that uh, stems from Armas playing in the quarterfinal game. And and, uh, obviously Oregon State advancing in the College Cup. They're in the Final Four, men's soccer. And the team is trying to provide some information to the NCAA Rules Committee, I'm told by a source, that they're claiming it was an administrative oversight. They're claiming that one of the yellow cards that was charged to Armas earlier in the season, that there was some confusion about it. Normally those kinds of appeals come in the next 48 hours after a game, but the NCAA is listening. Now the Rules Committee has final say. They have upheld this penalty in two other situations earlier this year. And if you get caught playing a player who is ineligible, the penalty is double penalty. It's double jeopardy. And Arma should have sat out the quarterfinal game. He would have been eligible to come back for the College Cup. But because they played him, whether it was an oversight or not, uh, Greg Dalby, his coach, and Armas, the player, would be unable to participate in Friday's semifinal round or Monday's National Championship College Cup game. It's disappointing for Oregon State. I know Oregon State officials this morning. I spoke with some of them. 
I was tipped off this morning by somebody at Oregon State who told me, hey, look into this. I reached out to the NCAA. You talk about an uh, organization that won't return a phone call. Uh, try getting somebody at the NCAA to give you an answer on something. They still haven't got back to me. Here we are like, you know, six, seven hours later. But uh, this is all going down, and it's kind of a disappointment. I know a lot of Oregon State fans are proud of that soccer team. Now, the team may just go on and win in the semifinal and win in the national championship. They might win the College Cup. But, uh, you know, Armas isn't like their MVP. He's, he's a defender. He's a good player. Not a great player. He's a good player on a really good team. But really kind of uh, puts a stain on Oregon State's wonderful run in men's soccer. I'll try to get an update for you on that on today's show. But, man, Stephen, they just can't catch a break. It's like, you know, people are jumping in the portal. You know, I'm, I'm like, well, at least they have soccer. And then this morning, the you know, I find out, hey, you know, they, they got a problem with the soccer thing. Good news, bad news. Yeah, it's just one of those things, man. Everything, once something happens, it just continues to go downhill. You look at even the basketball team. Uh, I saw they were the first team to play in an overtime game, win a game, but not hit a three-pointer. Like they just they they just can't get it right go get her, you know positive things going right now. And it was so positive like last season. You think going back into the football season at the start of the year how much positivity there was around just kind of the Oregon State program. And now it just seems like a couple months later everything can't go their way, but you know it seems like they're trying to uh you know Stay relevant, row the boat, just keep it going, keep your head above water, and then uh, hopefully one time, one day, you know, it'll uh, all turn around and things will go their way. And, you know, it can't yeah, get worse. Yeah, and I'm a big believer in kind of, you know, there is sort of a season for all things, and sometimes just, you know, every corner you turn around, you find, you know, you find a dollar on the on the pavement, and you know, you put it into a slot machine and you hit a jackpot, and then you take that money and you cash it in, and you. You, you meet an old friend at the cashier's cage, and it's like, man, everything's all lining up for me. And then other days, I get it, man. You hit your head on the cabinet, and you go to start your car, and your battery's dead. And then you jump start your car, and, you know, you find out, oh, you need a new battery. And then, you know, I just feel like Oregon State's in one of those ruts. And, you know, you got to keep punching if you're Oregon State. You have to keep punching. Trent Dray's brace kind of continue to recruit in football. He can't worry about what's going on with the lawsuit with Washington State and Oregon State. But... You know, certainly uh, for people who are excited about Oregon State men's soccer, you can stay excited about them. They're still in the College Cup. They're not going to have to forfeit the game that Armas played in. But, man, what an oversight. you got to get on that if you're Oregon State. And if there's any confusion about, you know, was it a yellow card in an earlier game? Was it not a yellow card? Did he have seven? Did he have eight? If there's any confusion at all, man, you've got to be on top of that. That's part of competing for a national championship and competing at the highest level of your sport. we got a great show today. Christian Capel's going to join us. Washington's in the Sugar Bowl, and they will play Texas. Uh, meanwhile, you got Alabama and Michigan in the Rose Bowl. Which of those games is the better semifinal game, Stephen, in your mind? Um, I, I'd have to go Alabama-Michigan. I, I think just the whole... Controversy surrounding Michigan with Jim Harbaugh, how they survived that. Now Harbaugh's back on the sidelines. Harbaugh versus Saban. I mean, that's a great little storyline there. You know, two of the most powered, uh, you know, prestigious programs in the nation. I think that's the more intriguing matchup. The Washington Texas game. I'm excited about it more. I think just because maybe I'm on the West Coast, so I know how good Washington is. I think Kalen DeBoer. You know, I talked about Harbaugh and Saban. DeBoer might be the best coach right now out of all four of these coaches that are in the college football playoff. So that one is going to be a fun one as well. But, man, when you throw up Alabama and Michigan, you throw up those powerhouses, 
how am I not going to be excited for that one? I, I, I think this could be, you know, it, it may not be a super high-scoring game, maybe a lower-scoring game, a lot of running the football, a lot of, you know, feeling each other out with these two coaches. But give me Alabama-Michigan all day, John, and I am uh, be entertained. Yeah, I think the national narrative, the national media want us to believe in Alabama-Michigan as the bigger game, the bet, better brands, bigger audiences. I understand why they do it because – you know, in the other game, you got Texas, and then you have a Pacific Northwest team, even though it's the Seattle market. Um, I think, um, I think, as I look at these games, though, I I think the more competitive game is going to be Washington against Texas. I think it's going to be a great game. I think it's going to be a one-score game. I think it's going to be Michael Penix. Can he win another one? They've won ten in a row, ten one-score games in a row. Can he make it eleven? And then can he make it twelve? And you have the the storyline of Steve Sarkeesian. Against Washington, you have, you know, here is a Pac-12 team in its final season trying to punch above its weight. You've got, you know, the, you know, the obviously Texas with all the hype about them beating Alabama. Yeah, certainly have Florida State rubbernecking at that game going, did Texas belong? Um, I want to hear from listeners. Which game is more compelling to you? 503-417-7575. I get the brands of Michigan and Alabama. I understand that. Nick Saban, Jim Harbaugh, big personalities, biggest paychecks in college athletics when it comes to coaching salaries. But I think that Sugar Bowl is sneaky good in a way that is going to be super entertaining. I think it's actually going to be the more competitive game because I think Alabama might just roll Michigan right off the field, Stephen. What makes you think that? Like Michigan... I know Michigan's schedule hasn't been great, but the way that they play, they're not prone, they're not prone to be, you know, run off the field like that. And I don't think Alabama is the type of team that can run them off as well. I mean, I know Alabama just beat Georgia, and that may be the best win in the entire country. But the week before, Alabama had a fourth and goal at the 31-yard line, and they had to convert it to beat Auburn. Like, I, I think we're overrating Alabama slightly because of the one win. And, yes, when they're at their best, they, can, the best, they could be the best in the nation. But I think Michigan is actually going to win this game. I haven't heard a lot of people on Michigan. Michigan is one of these teams where I believe in Jim Harbaugh. You know, I, I love Jim Harbaugh as a coach. I think he's really good, and I think they have something to prove. The fact that they feel like they've been doubted and they've been wronged because of the whole uh, Connor Stallions thing. They feel like everyone's out against them. I think that has something with them, put a chip on their shoulder. I like Michigan in this game. Uh, and the other game, I think you're right. I, Washington only plays close games. Like, that's what they've done since that Oregon game. Think about it. You know, back in Seattle, Oregon misses that field goal, Camden Lewis. Ever since that, it's been close game after close game after close game. I expect nothing different in this one. I also expect a lot of offense in this game between Washington and Texas. It could be one of the more exciting. I think it sets up to be one of the more exciting college football playoff semifinal games we may have ever seen. Going back to, like, the uh, Georgia-Oklahoma game back in the Rose Bowl. I think this one could be really high-scoring, really fun to watch. But I like Washington in that matchup. I like DeBoer. Better than I like Sark. So, I'll so get... you think we both think Washington's playing for the national yeah, championship? Yeah, I, I like Washington wow. taking on Michigan, and I think Michigan's going to win the title. But uh, you know, I, I'm excited. I, this is, I think, this is the best Final Four college football playoff we've had since it started. And you know, I think for a lot of people, it's it's good that it's going to be the last one that it has this way. And you know, it's all subjective because do we really know how good the SEC or the Big Ten was? Well, this is where we find out when we get an SEC against a Big Ten champion, and we get the Pac-12 champion against the Big 12 champion, and we find out which conference had the best champion. And Alabama's win over LSU is the one that jumps off the schedule to me. And, you know, that was in early November. Alabama at home, of course. 
but Alabama beat LSU by 14, and that's the kind of game that I think they'll play against Michigan. Let's see what happens. Let's go to Tony, who's in Oregon City. Tony, what's on your mind? Hi, John. Um, so isn't this another – isn't Washington a Big Ten school? Isn't Texas an SEC school? Shouldn't um, those two conferences be promoting their um, newest members the heck out of them? Because wouldn't it be funny if one of those two schools of the new conferences went and won the national championship? Well, yeah, I think and they I, start promoting it. Yeah, and I think there's a there's a 50% chance that that could happen, Tony. And, and that will happen after, though. It won't happen in the run-up. Or it will happen if... Texas ends up playing against Alabama for the national championship. Of course, the SEC will say, "Hey, we got two teams into the final. Uh, you know, we dominated it anyway." Um, but you know, you don't introduce your wife as your wife with your last name until after the ceremony. So you know, I think there'll be a little bit of uh, a little bit of hesitation as that happens. Michael Penix Jr. He uh, comes in second in the AP's Player of the Year award. Jaden Daniels, LSU, wins it today. Penix was second. I kind of think the Heisman vote is going to unfold the same way. Now, I'm not allowed to say what I did on my Heisman vote, but I can tell you in I, all three of positions and my one, two, three on my ballot went to quarterbacks, and I can tell you that two Pac-12 quarterbacks ended up on my ballot uh, and, you know, who the third one is. So I think everybody in the country is going to have pretty much those three guys with some Marvin Harrison Juniors as a second or a third and I think beyond that, it's going to be those guys. But does Penix have a shot to win this thing at all, Stephen, in your mind, this weekend as the Heisman Trophy's given away on Saturday? You know, I, I don't think he does. It, it was just that stretch that, that I just mentioned a little bit ago after the Oregon game where Michael Penix seemed like he was either hurt or sick or something was up with them. And there was a couple games, you know, the, the Arizona State game always sticks out to me. Washington won that game because of a pick six. They scored no offensive touchdowns, and I just don't think that you can win the Heisman when you don't score a touchdown in a game against a team that wasn't bowl eligible. They they weren't a very good team. Arizona State wasn't this season, and, and you can say injuries and all that stuff, but I just don't know that you can do that. And then you look at Jaden Daniels and the numbers he put up, the fact that he's in SEC country, all the SEC, you know, all those schools – you know, it just means more down there, John. They all root for each other. I, I yeah. think it all just kind of pushes to Jane Daniels, and he is deserved, right? The one thing is, is it though? Is it because yeah, you know, if, if we're going best yeah. college football player, I I think you could argue he's the best college football but player. But isn't the best college football player going to be some offensive lineman that's you know playing at Georgia or Alabama or Ohio State? Like you know, if we're really, I mean, it could be Caleb it, Williams again. Yeah, I mean, honestly, leave it in the hands of an NFL scout, and they're going to tell us you guys are nuts. These guys are all really good. You know, we don't blame you because the award is turned into, you know, who has the best offensive season, who has the highest profile, who gets marketed and promoted. Oregon certainly invested in, you know, trying to help Bo Nix win the award. Michael Penix Jr. had a lot of face time, a lot of TV time, but he might, you know, these guys might not even be the best player on their own team that we're talking about. You know, like you look at Oregon, you might be able to say, hey, you know, one of the Oregon offensive linemen or Bucky Irving was more valuable to Oregon. Like, didn't it turn out to be that way in the Pac-12 championship game? Like, Bucky Irving couldn't run the ball. You know, was he hurt? Was he not right? You know, was he more important, more valuable than Bo Nix? I don't know. We could have that debate. But, you know, the, to all the SEC people do also that, that said, you know, you can't vote for Bo Nix. He couldn't do it against an SEC defense. He ran to the Pac-12. I heard that narrative over and over. It's so lame because you could say the same thing about Jaden Daniels, who was at Arizona State. Like, he couldn't do it in the Pac-12. 
He had to go to the SEC to have success. You can say it about Penix. He couldn't do it in the Big Ten. He left Indiana, and he came to the Pac-12 to have success. We could talk about that all day. It's just what happens in college football. I think all of those guys are really good players. If you gave me my choice of one of those players for one season, I'm taking Michael Penix Jr. How about you? Yeah, I think Michael Penix, I trust him the most in these in a big-time situation. I've seen him. I think he's the best thrower of the football. Now, he's a little inaccurate sometimes, and his receivers make up for it, but Man, that guy has no fear, and we've seen that the last couple games when he's had to go down and make big-time throws on third and fourth down against Oregon, against Oregon State. You know, it, it's a known passing down. They're throwing the football, and he just, just says, hey, you know, I'm going to get it to a Dunze, and he's going to make a play. So, yeah, I, I think you're right. I think I trust Michael Penix the most. Um, and when I look at the Heisman, I think it's Jaden Daniels one. For me, I'd have Bo Nix too. I think just the overall se- season he had and look at his numbers, the fact that he was, you know, the interceptions were so low. The completion percentage was so high. I know he just, you know, threw a lot of, you know, check down spots, but that's what he was asked to do. And he did it efficiently and effectively. I'd have Bo Nix too, Michael Penix three, but I think Jay Daniels is the runaway winner. But if you're giving me one guy, John, it's a different question. You give me one guy I have to choose for one game, it's Michael Pettis Jr. I think he I think he may be the best college. Would Caleb Williams give you a pause? Like would you go, eh, you know, maybe I would pause with Caleb, but the thing about Caleb Williams is and I, I there's some questions now going to the NFL is how off script he is. If you just keep him in the pocket and keep him on script, how good is he actually gonna be? He's such a, he's such a unique talent where you get him outside the pocket. You let him use his athleticism. He's going to make big-time plays, but can he make the easy plays? I don't know that he can. I think it's big player bust with Caleb Williams, and I, I, in those big-time games, I don't know that I trust that. It's interesting for me to watch the San Francisco 49ers at the next level, who have Brock Purdy, who was the last player taken in the draft a few years ago, and he looks so good. And I look at Brock Purdy and I go, okay, what is his story? Like, you know, let's explain. Like, he just didn't pop up and all of a sudden become a quarterback. Like, he had a lot of starts in college at Iowa Iowa State. He was a guy, he was a three- or four-year starter, right? So he had a ton of, like, 36 starts. He had a lot of experience. So when he gets to the NFL, all the pressures on Trey Lance, all the pressures on Jimmy Garoppolo, nobody's talking about Brock Purdy. He's learning the offense and – in training camp. He's learning it during the season. By the time they need him to play, he's like, I'm not only experienced, I've been over here working on my game and I know the offense inside and out. And the Niners are better because of it. Like, I keep looking about that and I keep thinking that and I'm looking at Bo Nix and I kind of wrote Bo Nix off as a guy who could have a really good NFL career. But if he gets with the right team that isn't asking him to play right away, I actually think Bo Nix could be a really serviceable NFL pocket quarterback. You know, his arm strength, I got questions there, but I have those same questions about Brock Purdy. I mean, Bo Nix, Brock Purdy, like, you know, I think even I think Purdy's probably a little better runner. And but I look at Bo Nix and I look at Purdy and I go, you know, the only difference there is, you know, Purdy's got Debo Samuels and George Kittle and uh, you know, Brandon Ayuk and he's got a bunch of weapons, Christian McCaffrey, like you plug a quarterback into a situation like that, that guy's going to look really good. It's all situational, like you said. But don't you think Bo Nix, and what you've heard, Dan Lanning's come on the show numerous times and said how smart that guy is, right? And from everything you hear, everything you see, Bo Nix is one of the smartest players in all college football, maybe the smartest quarterback. You know, He's always changing places, he's always coming up with new things. I think having a guy like that in a locker room as your backup quarterback isn't the worst thing because it's almost as if he's a player and a coach. And like you said, he may be a better coach than player, 
But I think at some point, the way he goes about his business, he's not going to cause a problem in the locker room, no matter what his role is on the team. The fact that he is so smart, the fact that he's going to put in the work, I think at some point Bo Nix will get a chance. Maybe it's a game. Maybe it's a game or two You know, at the end of the season. But I think he gets a shot in the NFL at some point. Someone's going to take – because it's not a risk, right? It's a very, very high floor pick if you take Bo Nix. He's not going to cause a problem. So I, I think for me – He's going to get a chance just because of how smart he is in the book, but he just may not have the skills to make it into the NFL, but he'll get a chance, and I'm excited to see what he does with it because he's one of those guys, John, you're right, like Brock Purdy, like you know, like a lot of these guys. You give this guy a chance, he may just take advantage of it, and that's what he did at Oregon. Coming up, Christian Capel. He covers the University of Washington. He joins us next. Washington will be playing Texas in the Sugar Bowl. Christian Capel's been all over it all season on Montlake.com. That's the website you need to know. He's covering the team like nobody else. Uh, what has it been like for you since the Pac-12 title game? Yeah, it's been honestly a little different because there's no media availability scheduled this week. Yeah, after the selection show on Sunday, Kalen DeBoer spoke, but you know, you know what it's like covering a team on a beat. It's go, go, go every day. There's something, and so there's a little more time to kind of evaluate the matchup and, and look at what Washington's trying to do in, in the transfer portal, and um, just kind of start to lay the groundwork for coverage leading up to that game. So um, it, it's uh, it's a little quieter in some respects, but but there's obviously a, a lot to look at now too. Let's unpack the matchup, uh, Texas. When you saw that as the semifinal matchup. Yeah. Your first thought? I was a little bit surprised. I mean, that was my first when they popped up there at three. I really didn't think the committee was going to leave out Florida State, and I didn't think that they were going to be, be able to stomach leaving out the SEC champion. So I kind of thought of those five teams that were percolating. Everybody knew one was going to get robbed. I sort of thought it might be Texas. Um, and so to see them not only get in, but get in at number three. Uh, not to suggest that, that they don't deserve to be that high or ahead of Alabama, a team that they beat. I just was a little bit surprised that that's where the committee took it. And, you know, as, as disappointed and frustrated as, as some Husky fans are just for the, the fact they have to travel to New Orleans if they want to go to this game rather than just simply down to Pasadena for a, a Rose Bowl matchup, um, I think it is the best matchup for Washington. Uh, I think Texas is super talented and really, really good. And they, I, I sort of am of the mind that any four of these teams are capable of, of beating any of the other three on the right day on a neutral field. So I think it's going to be a really fun playoff. Um, but I think Washington does get a little bit of something out of the fact that, you know, this is a program it beat a year ago. Um, it's obviously a very different team. Washington's a different team. Um, but they're not walking into a situation where they're looking across the field at uh, you know, a, a, a team they're going to be intimidated by necessarily because, hey, they were on a neutral field playing against the Texas Longhorns a year ago in a bowl game, and, and they won that game. Give me an idea, the health of Washington coming out of the Pac-12 title game. They lose anybody? Not to my knowledge. Um, Kalen DeVore said he, he didn't think there was anything in that game that would affect anyone for the playoff. Obviously, they're kind of going the other way on some guys. They've been without Jalen McMillan for quite a while, and even when he came back, he, you know, they weren't they weren't getting him the ball down the field, and he, maybe he he took a, a couple games to knock some rust off, and sure looked like the old Jalen McMillan uh, in that championship game. So you know that's a that's one in the plus column. 
Um, an interesting little storyline, Zach Durfee, an edge rusher transfer from the University of Sioux Falls, who's been ineligible all year because the NCAA ruled that he was a, a two-time four-year transfer, even though his first four-year school, he wasn't even a football player, wasn't an athlete at all. Um, that's kind of been percolating in the background, and it turns out he'll be eligible after December 15th, after the end of the current academic quarter, and, and so you know, maybe that's somebody they can throw into their edge rusher rotation and keep those starters a little more fresh, and, and maybe he gets a chance to make his de debut in the CFP. Um, Tuli Latuli Nasanoa, their big D tackle, they, they really managed a, an injury for him the second half of the season, held him out of the Apple Cup for the most part, got 30 snaps uh, out of him against Oregon, and, and he was a, a big impact player for them, um, especially against Oregon's run game, limiting Bucky Irving to 20 yards. So, some of the guys that they've kind of been managing and hoping to get back, and there's been some mystery around, you know, they, they're, they're trending in the right direction, it seems. Yeah, the, the physicality of Washington in the Pac-12 championship game surprised me. It was a different level of physicality from Week 7. Was it just getting some guys back, or did Washington figure something out schematically? You know, I think they were just real confident they could do it. I think they felt like they ran the ball decently against Oregon the first time, and Dylan Johnson had 20 carries for 100 yards in that game. And since then, you've seen that running game sort of grow. Um, it, it, it hasn't always looked great. The second half at Oregon State, it was a, a major struggle. Um, but, you know, he, he went for 256 at USC. He went for over 100 against Utah. Um, he had some, some tough runs against Washington State. Now, I, I think that his his running style and his willingness to put his shoulder down and initiate contact and finish runs and pick up hidden yards that way has made them a more physical offense. And yeah, I think the offensive line has, has responded in kind. I mean, I don't know that you go through Washington's tape all year if you'll see a performance from first quarter through fourth quarter like the O-line put forth in this game, in that game on Friday, rather. So um, I think they've challenged that group. Uh, a couple of times this year to really step up the physicality and prove that they can be, you know, not just uh, a throw, throw, throw team, but a team that can run it down your throat if you want to, and, and they rose to the challenge. Christian Capel with us on Montlake.com. Michigan doing some things with Jim Harbaugh's salary negotiation. They are talking about extending him. Looks like they want to get that at least wrapped up or solidified to kind of keep him in place so it's not a distraction you know, as the playoff unfolds and the NFL season unfolds. Anything on the Washington front you could tell us with Kalen DeBoer? Yeah, only that, um, you know, everything I've heard for, for the past little while now is that it's close. Um, but, you know, these, these things tend to have a way of taking longer than they should at times. You know, if you're negotiating on behalf of Kalen DeBoer right now, you, you've got every bit of leverage, right? It's not just... He's 24 and two in his second season, and they're undefeated, and they're going to be in the playoff. Um, they also have a, a relatively new athletic director, who is, you know, the, the the vibe for him right now probably feels like, hey, you got one job, and that's lock up Kalen DeBoer, and and obviously, um, Kalen DeBoer's agent knows that, and so I think there's just a lot um, on his side in his favor uh, in terms of trying to get the best deal possible, um, and you know, I'm, I'm sure that his representation is is leveraging that as best they can. So I, I would think for Washington's sake, you'd want to have that done before the playoff, and especially if you get into transfer portal season here and, and trying to, to finish up the 2024 recruiting class and, 
you know, I, I'm sure that uh, at some point DeBoer is going to want to have that extension in hand to be able to show people, look, I'm committed, I'm here, you know, long term, this is done, there's there's no concerns about me going. So, um, you know, I, I think just from a, like from a Washington fan anxiety standpoint, Michigan getting something done with Jim Harbaugh would, would probably ease a lot of those um, if that came first or, or, or after, you know, either way. I think if, if DeBoer's deal is still hanging out there and not done and Michigan announces something with Jim Harbaugh, that probably eases some, some tensions. But, yeah, I, I would think that they, they'd certainly want to get it done before January 1st. Give us a peek into Washington's athletic department because Jen Cohen, the athletic director there, is now at USC. Coaches will tell you, right, Christian? They'll be like, hey, the person who hired me is no longer here. That makes them unsettled. Um, you know, how familiar is that athletic department going to be with Kalen DeBoer? If they bring, you know, somebody in from the outside, does that matter? You know, or is his success just sort of paving the way for everything? Yeah, I think it's the latter. And, you know, I think Anamari um, Kase, the president, involved him, I think, pretty heavily in the, the AD search. I don't think they would have hired somebody who the head football coach didn't sign off on. I'm just watching those guys talk kind of off to the side at Troy Dannon's introductory press conference. I mean, they seem to get along pretty easily. DeBoer's a Midwest guy. Dannon's a Midwest guy. Of course, he came from Tulane, but it, it spent his whole career in the state of Iowa before that. So um, I, I think they're, you know, they, they come from familiar roots. Um, you know, Dannon on day one was saying, hey, you know, my first, my first question for for Coach DeBoer was just, what do you need? You know, what can I do to, to give you everything that you feel like you need to compete at the highest level? I think he gets it. You know, um, I, I think uh, he's, he's high on their decision to go to the Big Ten and, and knows what resource and financial commitment needs to look like to, to align with their new destination. So um, I, I think that they're on the same page. I think he knows that um, there's nothing he can do in his first couple months on the job to uh, ingratiate himself with the fan base more than getting Kalen DeBoer locked up. Yeah, and I think uh, Washington fans probably uh, a little bit nervous about that. Life after Michael Penix, what happens? Do they have a quarterback? Is there someone in the portal? What are you hearing? Yeah, it sure seems like they're going to turn to the portal, um, probably similar to how Oregon's operating post Bo Nix. I know Will Rogers from Mississippi State is a target and has been mentioned as somebody they're looking into. I'm sure that they're, um, you know, they'll do their diligence on Cam Ward. He's one of the the top targets in the transfer portal, but obviously is going to be heavily sought after. Um, you know, it's funny because when Penix transferred, they had Dylan Morris and they had Sam Heward, and people kind of felt like Sam Heward still was the the option for the future, but obviously they needed a third scholarship guy to compete with those guys. And when it was Penix, there was kind of, you know, muted excitement. Like, okay, well, he's been hurt a lot. That's interesting. Well, you know, we'll, we'll see if he wins the job, right? And then they, obviously they have an open competition and he ends up being maybe the best quarterback they've ever had. I think this time around, you're very much recruiting to a thriving program and a proven offensive system with you know, at least a couple receivers who are making big plays this year coming back next year. You're going to lose your, your key guys. But the infrastructure is in place, and they've, they've put on tape you know what it looks like playing quarterback in Kalen DeBoer and Ryan Grubb's offense at the University of Washington. So I would think they'd expect to be in, in those conversations for, for you know, one of those top guys. The other semifinal, which team does Washington match up better with, Alabama 
or Michigan? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I would maybe say Michigan just because I, I think a really explosive offense um, with a great running quarterback is, is going to stress Washington's defense the most. And, you know, J.J. McCarthy is, is mobile in his own right. But um, I, I just think the way that Michigan wants to move the ball for the most part probably is a better matchup for Washington. Now, if they're not matching them physically and if, if Michigan's running it down their throats or running it at will, then, then it's not a great matchup. But um, it's not like they don't have weapons on the outside either. Um, but, I, you know, I just think from a – from an explosiveness and, and style of play standpoint, um, I, I don't know. I, it's one versus four, and, and you're talking about preferring the one instead of the four, but uh, I just I, I don't know that, that um, Washington would necessarily feel like it matches up better with Alabama than with Michigan. All right, Christian, uh, the Heisman Trophy ceremony taking place this weekend. Michael Penix will be a finalist. How are you going to cover that at, on Montlake? I'll be watching it at home. Um, you know, it's a tight turnaround. You don't know. Of course, I think we all could have assumed he was going to be a finalist, but you don't actually know until that Monday before the ceremony and with flights to New York and got a got a young kid at home and I've already been gone so much and we're going to be gone more. Um, I, I thought about that ahead of time and just kind of thought, yeah, probably probably the, the move to stay back and watch that one on ESPN. So I'll be on my couch watching um, – uh, I'm, I'm, I'm interested to see, you know, how it's covered and, and what the show looks like. Of course, I watch it every year, but Washington is, has never had a finalist in this, like, modern TV era. Their only finalist they've ever had was Steve Etman in 1991. So um, it'll be it'll be, yeah, it'll be different to see Washington represented on that stage, whether Penix wins it or not. You know what? I, I think he's been a hell of a quarterback. It's a hell of a run. I'm sure he'd rather be in the playoff than – trying to, uh, you know, be at a ceremony. Does that take him at all away from preparation? How much of a stress is that on sort of the pace of things? Yeah, not necessarily. They're not doing a lot this week. Um, I think DeBoer said they were going to run and lift some um, and, you know, maybe get get back to practice more toward the end of finals week. Like finals start this upcoming Saturday. So, you know, Michael Penix Jr. is a, a six-year senior who has a bachelor's degree from the University of Indiana. So, um, University of Indiana, Indiana University, I can never remember. Um, you would know, right? You were, you, you, you've been back IU, there. IU, uh, Indiana IU. IU, there you go. Yeah. I thought I had it, back. I thought I had it backwards. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I think he has, like, a class. Obviously, he's enrolled in something, but, you know, the, the finals are a little less stressful for the guy who's in his sixth year of college and, and already has his degree. So, um, you know. There's been a lot of his plays all year. He's got experience with that, right? He's done a ton of NIF, a ton of media, a ton of sit-down interviews and podcasts and Heisman campaign and all this stuff. So, um, you know, in some ways it's it's a reward for, for doing all that. This is kind of what he worked for, and, and, you know, maybe it'll be a moment to kind of enjoy it and appreciate it before they, they do get back to work in earnest for the playoffs. Christian Capel on Montlake.com. Read him there. He's the best on Washington coverage. Christian, thank you, man. All right, thank you. There he goes, Christian Capel. I've got an update. NCAA Soccer Rules Committee has upheld the penalty. Oregon State's Javier Armas will be suspended two games. Greg Dalby suspended four games. Beavers will have to play the College Cup without their defender and without their coach. Keep an eye on Oregon State. Uh, yeah, and now more than ever, I kind of want them to win that damn thing, Stephen. 
Our big splash is coming up. I think it's kind of brutal that the NCAA is coming in, cracking down on Oregon State for an administrative oversight, uh, while Jim Harbaugh and the sign-stealing scandal, you know, slap on the wrist, march on. Uh, it's evident that they understand that the money's buried in football. And, um, you know, you're going to draw the line in soccer where uh, the coach played a player. I guess rules are rules, but, man, I'm looking back at that going, uh, I guess. I don't know. It, it's just so weird to me that the NCAA will investigate, like, a academic fraud issue at North Carolina, take years to do it, and not end up in a in a place where, like, they have the ability to kind of have any kind of punitive actions towards the people who are actually part of the incident. Like, they wait so long, and they have no uh, subpoena power, that they end up in a position where, like, they're just punishing or choosing not to punish North Carolina because they go, oh, everyone's gone who uh, was part of the transgression. And yet on the Oregon State front, here's a case of Oregon State playing a midfielder that had his eighth yellow card, and after you get five yellow cards, you have to sit out, and then each subsequent yellow card causes you to have to miss a game. Well, apparently he did not sit out the December 2nd quarterfinal game, and Javier Armas will be suspended for two games, which means he misses the entire College Cup, and his coach, Greg Dalby, will miss four games. So the first, uh, the last two games potentially of this season – and uh, the start of next season as well. Rules are rules. Where do you stand on that, Stephen? Like, Oregon State fans, should they be mad going, hey, man, like if this were a basketball program, it would be six months from now before they figured this out? Uh, I think that's a good point, right? Like how inconsistent the NCAA is when it comes to uh, you know, punishing the, the offenses. But I will say, like, this is kind of on Oregon State for not knowing – what the total number of yellow cards were. Like, I I feel like there should be some punishment for it. Like, you cannot use an, Ill, an ineligible player and you're playing him. I think it's, you know, it's it's unfortunate for the kid. It's unfortunate for the coaching staff, unfortunate for the program. But at some point, like, that's on you guys for uh, not knowing what the exact number of yellow cards you had and you put them on the field. So I, I, think, it's, I think it's fair that they suspended him even for these type of games when, uh, you know, Oregon State's got a shot to win it. Yeah, and I think uh, – uh... I think there's a um, an in, an interesting point to be made about the NCAA. In the end, if the NCAA really wants to have any kind of teeth, it's got to have subpoena power. It's got to go after the revenue-generating sports with the same kind of ferocity that it, it has. Is that the only reason yeah. why the NCAA doesn't do that is because it's a revenue-generating no. sport? I think they're afraid of getting sued. So I think they tread very lightly when it comes to the revenue generating sports like they know like if they're going after Kentucky basketball uh they just tread very lightly and i you know if they're going after um you know if they're going after a soccer program in the Pac-12 then they you know then they start running towards it so i don't know in the end i think it's uh i think it's kind of crummy uh hey the blazers played hard last night you pointed it out on twitter did you like what they did <laughs> They do, yeah. You know what? I'll tell you this, John. The Blazers' record is not very good, but they play hard, man, and they're getting healthier, and it's fun to see some of these guys they had from a season ago play hard, man. You know, going against the Warriors, always a tough matchup. The Warriors are one of the best teams, if not the best team, at moving without the basketball, 
And the Trailblazers are playing really hard, playing really good defense on them. It, you know, it took a Steph Curry three-pointer at the end of the game to really seal it. The Blazers were down by one. Steph hits a clutch three, but you know the Trailblazers are giving some effort. And you know, I want to give Chauncey Billups some credit because you know I've been pretty hard on him. You've been pretty hard on him. I feel like during the offseason, we wanted to learn can Chauncey coach. It still remains to be seen if he's a great coach or a good, even a good coach. But he's getting his guys to buy into what he wants. And his vision has always been, you know, play really tough defense, get in the passing lanes, cause some problems. And that's what they're doing. You know, they have some of these guys like Matisse Thibel that's getting after people. Scoot Henderson offensively has been a struggle, but defensively he's picking up guys full court. He's causing some problems on the defensive end. I want to give Chauncey Phillips some credit. And, you know, I, I've been very hard on him. And I've said, you know what, this is the year he has to prove if he can be a coach in the NBA. I think he's proven he can be a coach in the NBA. Now it's what level? Is it a good coach? Is it an average coach? Above average, below average, whatever it is, he's got. Can we to say he's that. not a bad coach yet? I mean, we don't know, do we? We don't know yet, but I will say that he's not. He could. He should. He he deserves a chance to coach in the NBA. The first two years, I thought, man, maybe he doesn't even deserve a chance. I think he he deserves a shot now by what he's done with this roster because it's not overly a talented roster. It's a very young roster, but he's got these guys to play hard. Even got some of the veterans to play hard, which I think is hard to do in the NBA. So give Chauncey some credit. Give some of these players some credit. They just don't have the offensive firepower to win games. They go in these slumps in the fourth quarter where they they're just, just not they're not as talented. They, yeah, they where they just cannot score. They don't have the guys that can create a one on one play and get a bucket. But man, I, you know, defensively, like they are the way they play defense is how a playoff team plays defense. And I'll say that 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 and I think that is a very positive sign. Yeah, he's got like, and I hate that we have to say that because they should play hard. NBA <laughs> players should play hard. But the fact that we all know that not every team plays very hard and, you know, a lot of guys rest on the defensive end of the court is a problem. And I thought, I kind of thought, I was watching the end of the game, I kind of thought they they felt like they had a chance because the Warriors are struggling. Clay Thompson cannot shoot. What happened to Clay Thompson? He looks so uncomfortable. Yeah, he. I don't know if he's uh, if he's washed or not, but he he may be at that age where he just he can't move quite right, and then he just doesn't have his legs under him. But he, he his shot has been very brutal all season long. And you're right about the Warriors. I, I think the Warriors. You look at the Western Conference. The West is so good that the Warriors may be one of those teams that are on the outside looking at unless they make a move going forward because usually it's the Steph and Draymond lineups that have just dominated the teams historically. Like. When the Warriors figured it out, when you play Steph and Draymond, those two are unstoppable together. That lineup together, John, this year hasn't been good. It's been a negative, which has been, you know, just unlike what the Warriors have done in their, you know, in their dynasty that they've had. So the Warriors are going to have to figure something out, um, you know, going forward. I, I, they're going to have to add a player or two. But you're right about the Blazers. They, it's a change in attitude. They they come out and they're not afraid. They play hard, which is something we haven't said the Blazers have done the last five plus years or so. You know, when Dame was here, it got stale and they weren't trying. And now they're trying. So it's just, it, it is sad that that's how we, how we judge it in the NBA. But it's kind of how you have to. It's half the battle. It's just get the guys to play hard. And Chauncey, for, you know, all his all his bad things that he's done as a coach, he's got his guys to play hard this year. Yeah, and I, look, I, I appreciate that they're playing hard. They're not very good. I still think they're going to be under 28 or so wins unless they can start stealing wins here and there. Uh, James Harden played really well last night. I thought that was interesting to kind of see. You know, I, I hate to say this, but Anna asked me this as we were watching the end of the Clippers game. She's like, is he worth the trouble? Because he played like he was worth the trouble last night. 
he, I mean, that's the thing. He's an MVP player when he's when he's engaged and he wants to be on his team. Now he doesn't. He's not that level anymore. But I'm with you. I don't think he's worth the trouble. Like I just don't think he is because he demands the ball every single play. And when you, if you're not that guy anymore, you just, it's, you're not going to win. Now I think the Clippers are, are a good team. They can make some noise in the playoffs. But James Harden is one of those guys, man. I I think early in his career. I would have been all on board and saying, you you need to get this guy because he's that good. But now at this stage in his career, he, he's definitely not worth the trouble. And uh, I think the Clippers, they may be, in, may be in trouble maybe in a year or two when he gets just that much more older and he stays not engaged with the team. James Harden, you take him on your team, but you it, it would come with a little antacid, I think, in the end. That's kind of the – and meanwhile, the Spurs are losing. They've lost like 100 games in a row with Wembenyama. Is he still a draw? He's coming to Portland – you know, he's a couple times this season. Will people go to see him play, or is the novelty worn off? Um, I, I think there's still some of a novelty because he is one of a kind. Like we haven't seen a player like him before, but it, it's I, it's not a, not directly like the Deion Sanders coach prime Colorado thing, where at the start of the year they won some games, everybody was on board. That was the talk of the NBA. It's lost a little bit of luster, but I do think that he is a draw for a lot of you know true NBA fans, and even if you're a casual NBA fan. Like you're going to be seeing a guy that who's probably in the future going to be the best player in the NBA when he's a young rookie. So I still think he has some draw appeal. Coming up, we'll have Punch It Audio, the best sound from all around. Anna's going to pop in the studio. She'll have the 5 at 5 coming up. Uh, plus, you know, the Civil War game made ESPN Sports Center last night. We'll talk about why that's important and how do we get Scott Van Pelt out here for a Civil War football game. Says he's never seen it. Said he probably never will. Well, why not? Let's try to get him out here. Hour two is ahead. A lot going on in sports today. Anything? Any of it fun? I want to have some fun in this segment. Can we have some fun? The show's supposed to be a diversion. Whenever I tune in, like I'll be traveling and I'll get into a rental car. I'll tune into tune into the local radio or the regional radio show that's going on in whatever city I tune into. I'm always disappointed if uh, the show's taking itself too seriously. And I don't mean that we need to be, like, smashing watermelons with a sledgehammer. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm just saying, it's okay to have fun. Anna will be along this hour. That's always fun. You always tell me when you run into me, and I'm talking to you, the listener. You always say, oh, it's the best part of the show. I love when Anna's on. You know, you don't think about my feelings. When, when that's happening? No, I'm just kidding. I can confirm it's, that, though. Even everyone in my family that I've talked to, they're like, oh, we listen to the show. Really like when Anna's on. Nobody says, we just love when John's on. Yeah, nobody cares about me either. It's my own family. They don't yeah, care just, about me. It's I'm not here. Anna. Just here. It's kind of with the kids. When I'm gone, though, the kids run to me. Like, they'll sometimes they'll come to the airport. I don't know. You always see those families that are waiting at the airport when somebody comes through. Sometimes Anna will bring the kids to the airport. And I got to tell you, I don't take that for granted. They run towards me. That's a great feeling. It's slow motion. They're running towards me. Because it won't happen. It doesn't go on forever. Yeah, Lincoln, my nine-year-old, he had a basketball tournament, uh, not this past weekend, but the weekend before, and they won. And, you know, they took pictures as a team, and they all won. And then I went over to go talk to him. He saw me, and he ran and jumped in my arms, man. It was pretty cool. I was like, man, you know you know, he's a little third grader with a third and fourth grade team. I felt bad. Like, I didn't want to embarrass him. But at the same time, it was like, hey, that was a good feeling. It's a good feeling. It's a good moment. Those are the moments that count. 
You know, we all talk about our sports teams, whatever. It's those wins you have in your family on a daily basis. So he won the tournament. What is he? Is he moving on now, or is that just a tournament that was for the weekend? Yeah, I don't know how it works. They got these little, uh, you know, they got the foam fingers that said state bound. I don't, I don't really okay. know how these how these things work. But apparently now they qualified for the state tournament, which is later on this year. But uh, he's on a team where all they do is they play tournaments. I think they have like six tournaments this this winter. So that was the first one. Uh, they went 4-0, so it was a good little start for that team. Good little solid team they got over there. like that. That's good. Don't get sucked into it like every other parent. Just enjoy it for what it is right now, okay? All right. Don't be thinking about the scholarship. Don't be thinking about, you know, if he just grows a little bit, we get him with a personal trainer. I already sent a we... highlight tape to Shantae Leggins, though. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. Don't do that. Don't do that. Just enjoy it for what it is. Me and Coach Vaughn have hashtag D1 parents yes. on the shirts that we made. don't be in charge oh, of his okay. socials you know don't be like right now in charge of his social media he's the next baby and... gronk though john <laughs> don't do don't be that parent right now okay all right uh we're gonna hear about shohei otani is he gonna sign and for how much and booger mcfarland is going to rank the college football playoff teams i'll see if i agree with that and pete carroll talking about jamal adams twitter etiquette Oh, I can't wait for Punch It Audio. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Face Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio, presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. We'll start with some NBA basketball. Steph Curry with the dagger against the Blazers last night. Punch it. Portland does have a foul to give, but they have to foul. They have to foul twice. Although if they make the shot, it'll still be one this game unless they make it three. There it is. Steph Curry had 17 in the third. He's still really good. Draymond Green has some moments. The Warriors, though, are, are sitting around waiting for Klay Thompson to kind of figure out his shooting well. Now, you're a, you're a shooter. You're a basketball player, Stephen. Is that something he can just shoot himself out of, or is there something mechanically wrong? Or, you know, he's in a contract year. Is he in his own head? What's going on? Um, I think it, with Klay Thompson, I think it's age with him. Like, he's just... Because he runs around, and I mentioned this before. The Warriors, they run off ball screens. They move a lot on offense. It's a big motion offense, and that is really hard to do, especially when you just are getting up there in age. So it's amazing what Steph does. Not surprising that it's happening. It's surprising that it's happening this badly. I think he'll end up shooting better as the season goes on, but I don't think we're ever going to see you know old-school Warriors like we have in the past. Warriors looking like they're in a little bit of trouble, and Chris Paul... It's okay, but he's an old Chris Paul. Like, you know, you're looking at what the Warriors can get out of him. It's not enough to put you over the top. John Rahm defending the PGA Tour over the LIV Golf Series. This was him saying that he wouldn't join the LIV Tour. This is last spring. And now he is joining the LIV Tour. How much money did it take? Punch it. I do see the appeal that other people see towards the live golf. Um, I do see some of the 
I put this delicately, um, points or arguments I can make towards why they prefer it. Uh, to be honest, part of the format is not really appealing to me. Shotgun three days to me is not a golf tournament, no cut. It's that simple. Uh, I want to play against the best in the world in a format that's been going on for hundreds of years. Right? So that's what I want to see. And yeah, money is great, but when Kelly and I, was, this first thing happened, we, we started talking about it. And we're like, will I left out change if I got 400 million? No. It will not change one bit. Truth be told, I could retire right now with what I've made and I'd live a very happy life and not play golf again. So uh, I've never really played the game of golf for monetary reasons. I play for the, for the love of the game and I want to play against the best in the world. I've always been interested in history and legacy. And right now the PGA Tour has that. There's, there's a meaning when you win the Memorial Championship. There's a meaning when you win Arnold Palmer's event at Bay Hill. There's a meaning when you win L.A., Torrey, some of these historic venues. And Rom now going to the LIV Tour. $300 million, $400 million, whatever it is, he's taking the money. Booger McFarlane ranking the four college football playoff teams. Punch it. If I had to rank them, like regardless of ranking, let's just take the four teams now. Forget everything else. Rank the four teams based on based on the the eye test and the talent. I think Texas is one. I think Alabama is two. I think Michigan is three, and I think Washington is four. Based on just the amount of talent that they have on their football team and the multitude of ways that they can beat you. Yeah, I think that I, I, I think that's how I would rank them because if, if you're Washington, here's the thing you have to wonder if you're Washington. Can you deal with big boy football? At some point when this game is not basketball on grass, can you play big boy football? Can you stop big boy football? Can you stop it? Big boy football? You agree with this ranking, Stephen? Uh, not at all. No, I don't. Um, I wouldn't have Texas number one. Now, I do think the Texas win over Alabama – while good, yes. Just like we talked about with Florida State, it's a different team. It's a different Alabama team. It's a different Texas team. Jalen Milrow got benched in that game, I believe, against Texas. Like, he's been playing a lot better. So I, I wouldn't rank Texas one. I also think that Washington's going to beat Texas in the game. Now, maybe if we just look at talent, Texas is more talent. But I think you've got to put coaching involved as well. Give me Kalen DeBoer. But I, I would go, if I'm going to straight talent, I would probably go Alabama one, Michigan two. Uh, Washington 3, Texas 4. I think Michael Penix Jr. is that good. I don't know that I trust Quinn Ewers to make a big-time play. I think right now, I'm just saying, what kind of football are they playing? I'm going to say Alabama 1, Washington 2, Michigan 3, Texas 4. Well, it's hard not to say Washington up. I mean, they haven't lost, John, 19 in a row. I get. I think Booger McFarland was just ranking them based on how many Twitter followers each of those programs have. You know, who's, who's the most popular team? And by the way, Washington basketball and grass? I don't know. They ran the ball all over Oregon. Ever since that or the first Oregon game, they have not been basketball and grass. Dylan Johnson has been a beast on the ground. And I, I was one of the last people to believe in him. Dylan Johnson has been a really good player for that team. Jeff Passan, friend of the show, talking about Shohei Otani. Is he going to sign here? Punch it. Uh, we are on Shohei watch right now because I think sometime in the next probably 96 hours or so, Whoa. we're going to have a much better sense of where Shohei Otani is going to wind up. And look, the favorites from the beginning, AJ, 
have been the Los Angeles Dodgers. This is a team that every year goes out and spends two hundred fifty plus million dollars on payroll. Has been over three hundred million in the past and needs a guy like that. Uh, Otani is familiar with Southern California, having spent the first six seasons of his career with the Los Angeles Angels. Uh, the interesting thing, though, is what the Toronto Blue Jays have done. The Blue Jays, out of nowhere, have made a really strong run at Otani. Blue Jays making a run. Otani, look, they're talking $600 million. And Passon says it's coming in the next 96 hours. I'm kind of wondering, uh, you know, do you think Otani, whoever signs him, ends up viewing it as a win? Or is it a win for now and then mixed results? Or is it a implosion? Because when you talk $600 million, the threat of there being an implosion is there. This is a risk for whoever because of the arm issue. I think it's a win at the start, though, just because you're going to win the press conference, right? Because Shohei Otani, back-to-back MVPs, you'll be able to sell that to your fan base and say, look, we went out and we got the best player. Don't worry about the money. We got the best player for our roster. But I'm with you. I think down the road it's going to be tough to justify $600 million for a guy if he can only be a hitter. Now, great hitter, no doubt about it, but not $600 million worth. Liberty against Oregon in the Fiesta Bowl. Jamie Chadwell, Liberty's coach. Here he is. Punch it. Today was surreal uh, for for our program, for our players, to uh, to see uh, you know our name, our, our logo up there uh, in the Fiesta Bowl was you know something that really probably beyond our dreams. And then on top of that, to play one of the premier college football programs in the country with Oregon, uh, you know, was something that typically doesn't happen to uh, you know programs like us. The big, big game for Liberty. You know, they made the jump from lower division football to upper division football. They hop into Conference USA. They haven't played a Power 5 conference team all season long. They're 13-0. and The ESPN's Power Index has Liberty with the worst strength of schedule in America. Oregon's got to beat their pants off. Do you think there is what? a chance, though, that Oregon sleepwalks maybe through the first half and Liberty stays within, you know, makes it a game and maybe ends up pulling it I out at the not. end? I hope not. It would be a tremendous embarrassment for Oregon football. Is that a worse loss for Dan Lanning than, uh, yes. than the Pac-12 title game? Yes. Wait. Oh, my gosh, yes. That's Like last year in the same game, okay, in the same matchup, the Group of Five champion, it was USC and Tulane. But Tulane was good. Like Tulane had players. This Liberty team, hey, they're 13-0, but they're 13-0 beating Western Kentucky and New Mexico State twice. Like, they haven't played anybody. And, and they, you know, they've been in some close games, too. But, you know, you have to give, you want to give credit. I don't want to knock them because, you know, they're trying to, they're trying to get their feet under themselves. They're trying to be a program. But Oregon should absolutely demolish them. It's a big opportunity for embarrassment here. For Oregon, I you know I hope not, but I I think because Bo Nix plays in the game, there's just no shot Liberty stays close. Now, Charles Barkley, Stephen A. Smith, ESPN and TNT collaborated in season tournament coverage, and it gave us a gem. Punch it. We have a, a little crisscross between NBA Countdown and inside the NBA. Gentlemen, Ernie, crew, Monica. hello. <laughs> hey. 
We're doing all right. Stephen A's doing okay. I'm all right. Wait, wait, Ernie. This we, is kind of a new thing for everybody but Chuck, who's only been on PTI about 18,000 times. <laughs> At least, thank God. Hey, Ernie, can I say something? Uh, that's what they pay you to do. Well, I want to say this. Mike Wilbon. Yes, sir. M Malika, you are fantastic. Wold, you know how I feel about you. <laughs> Wilbon, you've been my mentor. You've been my friend. I just want to thank you and Amar Bashar for always being there, giving me advice thank on my you. career. Thank you. Love and, you, brother. Hey, Bob, you know, I love you. And let me tell you something, Stephen A. <laughs> if you come over here with all that loud ass talking today, <laughs> hey, this ain't first take. Hey, thank hey, you. This tell ain't him, first Chuck. Take. This going to be the first to ass whooping you take. <laughs> you come over here with that loud ass. <laughs> I love Charles Barkley. He, you can put Charles Barkley anywhere, in an elevator, and an awkward conversation be hilarious. Well, haven't we all felt that way about Stephen A. Smith? Like, hey, you know what? Yeah. Let's let's not yell right now. Or uh, yeah, you know. <laughs> Chuck's the guy that can say it though. Yeah, <laughs> he can say he can say the uh, quiet part out loud, so to speak. Pete Carroll talking about Jamal Adams. Pete, if you don't know Jamal Adams. And the Seattle secondary blew a coverage against the Dallas Cowboys, lost the football game. Reporter tweeted, yikes, with the video of the blown coverage. Jamal Adams went internet sleuthing and found a photograph of said reporter's wife. Tweeted, yikes. Then his coach talked to him about it, said this isn't what we want to be about. Jamal Adams came forth and said... If you go low, I go lower, which isn't an apology. It's just been a bad look for Jamal Adams all the way around. Pete Carroll talking about Jamal Adams here. Punch it. Yeah, we've already addressed it uh, with him. And, uh, you know, I don't know if it was a great decision. At the time. I'm not sure about the, the details of it, but I know that he realized that you know, he needed to take it down when he put up. And so uh, we don't want to do, do be part of that. We don't want to be part of that. But did he check with Jamal, who subsequently went public and said, um, I'm going to double down on this? It's just been a bad look. He, you know, Stephen, I think you said it yesterday. The minute that Jamal Adams came out and said, um, you know, said reporter's wife and went at somebody's wife, he lost the argument. Yeah, 100%. Like, that, that just you're not even arguing what's on the field like he just the the reporter made a football comment of like yeah that was really bad defense and so when jamal has to go outside of that you lose the argument the pete carroll comment john it sounded like uh one of those things where you know you work for a business and on my twitter account i have to put thoughts are my own like he, he said you know what jamal adams his thoughts are his own he is not associated with the seattle seahawks thoughts and uh you know what we think about us as, as a program i think uh the seattle seahawks and a whole bunch of other people Probably looking for uh, a better solution to this. Can Jamal Adams come back for it? That's the question. Judah Newby is our resident Seahawks honk. I have to know what diehard Seahawks fans think about Jamal Adams. Judah, like, lay it out. Like, you've watched this unfold. How are you feeling about it as a Seahawks fan? Yeah, uh, pretty bad. Pretty, pretty, uh, pretty terrible. I think Jamal Adams is—he uh, struggled on the field. First of all, that doesn't help his cause. Uh, secondly, that is such a terrible look. I'm with—I stand with Pete Carroll on this one. Uh, uh, no place for it in Seahawks culture uh, for Jamal Adams right now. 
Yeah. Yeah. Are, do you think most fans feel that way? That they're just kind of over it and. Well, I think it's because he is a bad football player right now. Outside. Oh, of, if he were like, better, that people would be like, "I'm yeah. with Jamal." Oh yeah. Yeah, that's that's the double standard for sure. But, I mean, we paid such a high premium for this guy a few years ago with New York. All he can do is blitz. He cannot cover. It's terrible, and he is such a liability. It's all this, we're going to play him and two other safeties on the field at the same time, and it's really uh, backfired, and uh, now he's making himself look even worse somehow than he already is in coverage uh, by going after people's wives. I, yeah. it, it really does frustrate me, even though the next time he'll get a sack, I'll probably pump my fist, but it really is embarrassing. Yeah, it's just bad. Like, you don't win that one. And I look back at it, and I go, like, he must know that on some level, and I kind of wonder if his frustration is just kind of pouring out in a way that, you know, all the rest of us are not really seeing the message is, hey, I'm struggling as a player, I'm frustrated with myself, and I'm lashing out at this guy's wife because I'm not playing very well. Yeah, it, he's probably not. Uh, this is gonna be a tough one, yeah. but I mean, like, Go. I don't think he's he's mentally well. You know, yeah. as as a professional athlete, there's a whole conversation around that. Uh, he also got a concussion in the Week Four game against mm. the Giants, and he's lashing out at the independent neurologist on the wow. sideline. Like this yeah, dude, right. he's got imbalance, um, and that's not something to be taken lightly. But at the same time, you know, I I gotta agree with your assessment yesterday. Like a lot of this critique, that's what the money's for. And some right. people will be like, wait, just because they make money means that you've got the ability to to uh, critique them? Well, saying yikes about an instant replay is not exactly a harsh critique. I know they've yeah, got know. background. I know it goes back a ways. But you're right about it, John. Like they've got the platform. Like if you're if you're an actor, you're on a stage. The, the reason you get paid is because people come watch you play. And part of watching somebody produce something for which they're being paid to do, it naturally produces feedback. How What world would this be if we wouldn't be allowed to critique people that are producing something? If something's bad in the produce section, we'd call it out. I mean, that's, that's, what, that's what we do. This idea that you can make millions of dollars and be completely you know, outside the realm of criticism, it's just wild to me. It's just wild to me. I don't get it. And the people that say the same thing, like, stop with the... Na-. You were talking about Sheed yesterday. It's like, stop with the negative stories. It's like, what are you talking about? Like, it's stop part of... Stop doing bad things. <laughs> stop doing, stop bad, doing things. bad things. Well, it's like Yelp, you know? We all love Yelp. You go into a restaurant, you use Yelp. It'd be like, if you posted on Yelp, the food was really bad. I, You know, I came in, I was hoping for a different experience, and... You know, the service was bad, the food was bad, and they were like, how dare you post a bad review? No, pick up your game. Pick up your game. Would it have been better, though, if the reporter didn't just say yikes and he was like, oh, Jamal Adams with some bad coverage? Like, he would have actually said, like, some football no, things? He got, I think Jamal would have done the same thing. Yeah. Yikes. Just, uh, y- yikes is not, come on. Like, as a reporter, is there a, better, is there a better way to go about that, John, than the way that guy did? I don't know, because we're asking, like, you know, the reporter made a offhand, unfiltered, in the heat of the moment, judgment on what he was going to tweet, and then Jamal did the same thing. It seemed, I think the reporter it did better. It seemed yeah. fair, in my mind, yeah. what he said. So, like, I don't, yeah. I, that's why I'm asking you, like, how would you have gone about that situation if you were critiquing Jamal Adams? Would you just said, oh, Jamal Adams with more blown coverage, or just a yikes? Is that a better I way to do it? I think yikes is fine. Yikes is not, like, so that's tame. not a grenade. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah, yikes is a wad of tissue paper you're throwing at the guy. Like, yeah, if he would have said... 
Now, if Jamal Adams was on his deathbed, and I would have, you know, plugged <laughs> my phone charger into the yeah. to the to the outlet, <laughs> like someone told John that's in mean. Seattle. That's, that's me. That's actually. But mean. Judah, you you raise a good point about mental wellness, and you know concussions, and I, you know, we've seen this, and I think we all suspect that, like Antonio Brown, whatever. Some of it might have been mental health in general, but there could be some brain. You know, damage and some brain injury in play here as well. You kind of got to watch him and go, okay, is he acting like a normal, rational Jamal Adams? And he's not. So, you know, you got to kind of wonder what the NFL teams are dealing with, not just with Jamal Adams, but potentially with other players. Anna's popping in the studio. Leave it here. I don't know. Joel Embiid was, uh, is a pretty good player, right, Stephen? Like, isn't he a good player? Like, he had 30 points last night, I think. 50 points last night, yeah. Oh, 50, yeah. Yeah, 50. No. yeah MVP. Yeah. MVP last season. Yeah. Really good player. 30 and a half, I think. Was I, what was I th- seeing? Did he have 30 and a half? I don't know. Uh, he had 50. Okay. So, last night he had 50. Paolo Banchero had 42, quietly. Thought that was interesting. But Austin Rivers throwing some shade about to Embiid. Here he is. This guy puts up numbers on a night in and night out basis. Mm-hmm. He's one of the most dominant bigs. Second most dominant big. Obviously, he plays in the era with Nicola. Mm-hmm. Uh, but... Uh, yeah, man, I, I I love his game. He's he's must see TV. In terms of Philly and where I, you know I see them at in the long race, I, I see them as a third option uh, coming behind Milwaukee and in, in the Celtics. I'm not gonna say anything positive about Philly, man. They did my pops dirty, bro. <laughs> I, I, I got nothing to say. No, about make them. it personal. Make hey, it personal. No, no, Austin, it personal. is personal. Austin, family of everything, it's bro. Family first. Family with first, you. man. Come on, Daryl. <laughs> Talking to you. You know. <laughs> There it is. Is there an agenda there? Is there truth there? I think Do we all bit. have an agenda? Uh, I don't know that we all have an agenda, but I mean, I feel like if like my dad got fired by a team or something, maybe I would hold even more of a grudge against players and teams. Maybe not. I think I, I think everybody. I think everybody to some extent has an agenda. I do, and and I think the the challenge is to be mature enough to uh, set your agenda aside. Or pause it when you're trying when you're put in a role where you have to be objective. I'll give you an example of that. Um, I found out this morning that um, Oregon State men's soccer program had a problem. They're in the College Cup. I mentioned it off the top of the show. They're in the Final Four of NCAA soccer. You know they got a match on Friday. They got a championship match potentially on Monday. This is it. All the marbles are on the table. I found out this morning. Source at Oregon State whispered to me, there's an issue with the soccer program. You might want to look into it. I found out that the soccer program had a player that shouldn't be playing that was on the field for the for the uh, quarterfinal game. And so um, I reached out to Oregon State through the channels that are uh, uh, you're supposed to use as a media member. And uh, the player... Javier Armas, had, it turns out, it, you know, was facing a suspension, a two-game suspension, like he'd missed the whole College Cup because he shouldn't have played in the quarterfinal game. He was ineligible to be playing. They played him. And his coach, Greg Dalby, was facing a suspension as well. He would miss the College Cup. So you're going to be without your coach and without, without one of your defenders. So I reach out to Oregon State. They're not happy to hear from me on this front. There's some times where they are happy. But I reach out to the uh, soccer sports information person and say to him, I literally said, I'm really sorry. Like, you know, I don't call you all year. You guys are having a great season. 
Yeah, I don't call you all year, and I'm calling you now, and I know that you know, there's a conference call going on right now with the NCAA and your soccer administrator, and I know that you know at the center of this is this player that should have been playing, and it's a mess, and again, I feel really bad that this is the only time I'm calling because it's like they've had this great season, and here I am dropping out in with a parachute, like you know, right before the Final Four to go, hey, by the way, you got a problem. Um, but, you know, I didn't cause the problem. NCAA is going to do what they're going to do anyway. But I could just tell a little bit that Oregon State was not happy to hear from me. So I reached back out in the afternoon. You talk agendas. And I say to that same soccer person, did the NCAA give you any kind of resolution? It was 2 p.m. Any kind of resolution. I just kind of want to update people. Like, is Armas going to play? Is Dalby going to be coaching? Like, I'm just trying to do my job here. So, um, and for people who care. Like, there's a thin stripe of people who actually care about men's college soccer. I'm sorry to say that, but if you are a men's college soccer fan, I mean no disrespect. Just the audience where it's not the same as college football or whatever, which kind of explains why we're not talking about it on the show year-round. But we talk about it when Oregon State makes the Final Four, and we certainly talk about it when there's a problem. So, um, you know, I reach back out to the sports information person who says, you know, I, we've been busy. You know, I don't really have an update, but, you know, we've been busy with, uh, with ESPN and media stuff. Haven't talked to anybody for a bit. Um, I waited and waited and waited. I finally just reached out to the NCAA who said, yeah, we told them that Armas is suspended. We told them that Dalby was suspended. Oregon State knew this at 2 o'clock when I asked Oregon State, and they said we've been busy with media stuff. So agenda, like, I'm looking at that now, and it's hard for me because i gotta, I got to kind of understand that I can't see into their world. They're probably super busy getting ready for a Final Four or whatnot. But it's hard for me not to feel like Oregon State didn't like the fact that this even got out. And because of that, they were just kind of going to not say anything. They didn't issue a news release on this, guys, until, like, you know, just in the last 45 minutes or so. Like, it's like your fans probably needed to know the coach isn't coaching and Javier Armas isn't playing. Like, if this were Jonathan Smith and the football season was ongoing and it's the college football playoff, like, this would be major news. This would be national news. Jim Harbaugh is not going to coach. Huge news. Uh, you know, so, you know, I hope Oregon State wins the damn thing in spite of all this. Hope they're good enough. But I, I'm left feeling a little bit like there was a little agenda there, that they weren't happy to get the bad call from me, and so, therefore, they were like, we're not going to even tell you when we got the resolution. Like, give me a break, you know. you know, and, and that doesn't, like, that doesn't incentivize me to reach back out to Oregon State and be like, let's get a soccer player on the show like next season. Let's, you know, or whatever – sport is non-revenue generating it doesn't really incentivize you so i'm left kind of looking over there going you know what is going on inside that athletic department and and you know amid you know what's going on might be that they're all scrambling around and maybe that's the answer they're all scrambling around trying to figure out like how to avoid relegation of the mountain west and get the civil war game going and get football staff together and you know there might be a million things going on i would sure like to know like, what in the world is going on? Because from an administrative standpoint, how does a soccer player, this is a question I have now, and I'm more interested in this now because they didn't bother to answer it. Like, it kind of piques my interest. Like, how does a soccer player 
who was facing, you know, a one-game suspension in the quarterfinals, how does that guy end up on the field and in uniform? Who else knew about this? Like, you know, were they just going to try to, like, quietly, like, play? He's a defender. Maybe no one will notice. I don't know. But it's weird to me, and now I'm more interested in it than ever because they didn't want to talk about it. Uh, anyway, Anna's popping into the studio. She will be here. We got the 5 at 5 ahead. You got Thursday night football coming up right here on uh, 750 The Game in Portland. But we are not done here. We are going to finish this hour strong. And uh, I'm going to hydrate. I'm going to take a drink of water during the commercial break. You can probably tell I'm a little under the weather, but who cares? Uh, I'm doing this show, but it's mostly... Stephen told me during the break, he says, you don't sound as bad as you think you do, which is probably good advice. You're never as bad or never as good as you really are. It's good advice to remember. All right, 5 at 5 is coming up. I want you here for it. You got the bald-faced truth statewide on the BFT Radio Network. I want you here for this. Well, I broke the news yesterday that the Civil War football game is on for 2024 and beyond. There are still some details that need to be sorted out with some of the partners, but it looks like Oregon State and Oregon have agreed that uh, they are going to play the rivalry game in 2024 in Corvallis in 2025. At Autzen Stadium, um, I can tell you that the reason why they don't want this released is that there are some other dominoes that need to fall that if, that impact some other programs that are trying to get their stuff in order before the news breaks that they're losing a football game against Oregon or Oregon to make room for these games. But Texas Tech and Boise State are willing partners in 2024. They have swapped some games. Texas Tech uh, is going to play Washington State. Boise State will play. Uh, will move weekends. It'll play Oregon on a different weekend than it was originally scheduled. It moves from September 14th to September 7th. And then it has a September 7th game that the Boise State was supposed to play against Oregon State that will be played later in the season. Last night on SportsCenter, Scott Van Pelt talked about the rivalry. He gave me a heads up. He messaged me, said, hey, I'm going to make this my one big thing. And here's how it went down in ESPN's world last night. I remember when I learned that Maryland was going to head to the Big Ten, and I could not believe it. Charter member of the ACC, leaving that felt like a lot. It was all money-driven. I said at the time, I hate it, but I get it. As it turned out, it was a remarkably shrewd move when you look at the tens of millions more that Maryland receives each year in revenue distribution as a result of their conference affiliation. It was hardly the end of seismic change in college athletics. I would not have imagined, however, a conference road game at Oregon would ever be a thing, and it will next season. Ducks, along with Washington, USC, and UCLA, are headed to the Big Ten next year. Their departures precipitated the death of a storied, more than century-old conference. Last week in Vegas, Oregon and Washington was the last gasp for Pac-12 after dark. The reasons behind it were the same that my alma mater left, but the ACC remains, albeit an entirely different version of the one I grew up with, the Conference of Champions will be no more. Thankfully, not everything is dying with it. Before the Apple Cup this year, Washington and Washington State announced that traditional game would continue through at least 2028. And Wednesday, John Canzano reported the Civil War will as well. The matchup between Oregon and Oregon State, like the Apple Cup, is a game college football simply has to have. For all that is abandoned in the name of progress and profit, rivalries True generations-old battles must be maintained or the lifeblood of what makes the sport spectacular evaporates. As Kinzano wrote, quote, it took work. And to that, I would say 
that things in life worth having and keeping mostly do. The easy thing to do for a lot of schools and rivalries after a conference breakup is to throw your hands up and say, it's too difficult, we can't make it work. And I'd imagine that to be mostly the truth. In this instance, as Gonzalo explained, it required the assistance of Texas Tech and Boise State to move games already scheduled to make puzzle pieces fit. They could have simply explained, look, we don't want to. Or we do, but we're kind of stuck, so sorry. But that's not how it went. So the Civil War continues, and to those who did the work behind the scenes to ensure it will, I salute you. From all the way on the other side of the country, a guy who's never seen that game in person and almost certainly never will, it makes me smile to know the people to whom this game matters more than it should will get to continue to enjoy it. It's worth the work required to preserve it for the generations to come. He gave me a heads up that he was going to make that his one big thing. I reached out to Scott Van Pelt this morning, and I told him, come out to the game. I will drive you to the Civil War if he wants to come out and make the trip out. Anna, let me ask you. Let me bounce this off you. He says the things that are worth having and keeping take work. Is he right? Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, first of all, though, I would love to see you as his Uber driver uh, to the game. That would be fantastic. Um, but I agree. I mean, I think that he has a take... You know, we've obviously seen since he reported this a variety of opinions from either Ducks fans or Beavers fans who don't want to series this series to continue. But I think a lot of people have an appreciation for history. And I don't think that people understand the moves that had to be made and the compromises that had to be made to keep this series going. And he has an interesting take, which is fascinating to me because He's on the East Coast looking in on what's happening on the West Coast and obviously taking an interest in it. He's got the perspective of being a Maryland graduate, and I think that's interesting because he's watched realignment affect, you know, sort of what he views as history. And he's a Maryland guy. He's an East Coast guy who grew up in the D.C. area and, you know, went to Maryland. And so he saw Maryland leave the ACC. Now, you've since seen the ACC sort of change form anyway, but it still exists and it's still out there. Um, I think, you know, for people who are against this, let me let me just create another lane for you. There are some people who are against it because they just don't think Oregon and Oregon State should be playing each other. They're, they're going to be apples and oranges. One of them's going off to the Big Ten. One of them is fighting for survival. These two things are not the same. How can Oregon State compete? And I don't blame Beaver fans who are looking right now into the portal and seeing a line of Oregon State players who are good players like Jack Felling, and the Arnold brothers, and you know Aiden Childs, and DJ Ungalele, and you're watching these guys jump into the portal, and you're going, okay, wait a minute, how do we play next year's game? Uh, and then you're simultaneously watching Oregon kind of parade around on the private plane, and Dan Lanning's taking photos with high school recruits, and you see like it's almost like there's two different you know two different worlds that they're living in right now, and they are. But this game is important for both sides. If Oregon state wants to survive and play again and matter in college football it has to in the next 24 to 36 months find in as much revenue as possible try to win that pack two lawsuit against the pack 12 and try to fund itself just like oregon will with the 35 million dollars or so they're going to get in the big 10 conference like oregon state can get to that number and having oregon as a home game helps there's not only revenue in the home game and all those sold-out tickets in your season ticket package that will include Oregon next season, 
there's a, you know, you hold the media rights for your home games. So all the college football games that you see, the home team owns the media rights. And that's what a that's what a grant of rights is. You know, within a conference, Oregon has given the Big Ten Conference its grant of rights. That means that the Big Ten can sell Oregon games. See, the Pac-12 had their grant of rights before. That was We heard that talked about during the last round of media rights negotiations, the grant of rights and all that stuff. Well, if you are Oregon State, you want that Oregon home game among seven home games that you're going to have so that you can turn around to a TV partner and you can monetize that to the fullest extent. You're going to be able to sell that game at a premium. And, you know, for those of you who are like, well, I just don't want to play the Ducks, you know, get real. It's time It's time to get real with the circumstance that you're in. You're not going to get another Power 4 opponent who is going to willingly come to your stadium and not ask for, you know, damn near a seven-figure payday to come play the game. Oregon's going to do that and go, hey, we'll just trade you a home game for a home game straight up. You cannot make that deal with any other Power 4 member. So it's a really important game for Oregon State because they're going to live off that money. And if you know you've got that game locked up in perpetuity every other year, just like Colorado State knows it has that game locked up against Colorado every other year, if you have that game in your arsenal, you know that's going to help you with season ticket sales. You know that's going to help you try to stay as relevant as possible, particularly when you're playing a schedule that is heavy with Mountain West Conference opponents next season. There'll be six games against the likes of Boise State and Fresno State and Wyoming. And so you need these games against Oregon, against Purdue, against Cal, the games that they're trying to schedule against Georgia. So you need those if you're Oregon State. So, you know, I, bad feelings aside, this is a win for Oregon State. Simultaneously, it's one of these weird cases that it's a win-win. Now, Oregon fans keep saying, you know, we're giving up a game against a Big 12 opponent in exchange for a game against Oregon State. That doesn't make sense. We're giving up a home game. I'm, I'm here to tell you that there's another domino that needs to fall here. Oregon has some future dates where they're supposed to go on the road. They will not have to go on the road, and instead they'll get a home game against Oregon State every other year. Same thing. It benefits them because the Big Ten schedule plays nine conference games, five away, four at home. Every other year it alternates. And so every other year Oregon's going to be looking for a home game. And guess what? You don't have to look. You don't have to pay somebody to come to Autzen Stadium. Nobody wants to come in there anyway. You're going to be able to know that you've got your rival coming in. And, oh, by the way, that's a sellout for a non-conference game that's traditionally a really tough sell in about that week of the season. From a nostalgia standpoint, I get it. Like, I understand. There's some. There's a division out there. If we just make this about nostalgia, there's some of us who are very nostalgic, who want to see this rivalry played. There are others out there that are going, you know, I don't see the point. I don't get it. Uh, you know, let bygones be bygones. But, you know, I'm here to tell you, like, if they did that in 1912, 1945 and 46, coming out of the war, um, the, you know, this rivalry never would have been a thing. Like, I'm glad somebody was advocating for these schools to play each other all along. And so I think we still have to do that. We still have to, you know, you know, this is all going somewhere different anyway. You know, it, you see Charlie Baker, the NCAA president, he comes out this week and he says, he wants to create this division of the haves in major college football. They're going to pay the players a salary, and they're going to commit to $30,000 a player, and you know there's going to be about a 5 or $6 million investment every year per school. I don't know if Oregon State wants to be a part of that yet, but they're going to have a 
fighting chance to be a part of that. If they decide, you know what, we can't afford that, they're going to need this game against Oregon. They're going to need to stay relevant. They're going to need to keep their head above water. That's what it is all about for Oregon State right now as they are uh, looking down the pipeline. And they're just, you know, they're just trying to get through it, just like Washington State. I think part of what we're seeing here is just a curious study of human behavior. Everything is so raw. I mean, the lawsuit that Oregon State and Washington State have against the Pac-12 is still pending. So the emotions are all there. So I, I, I wonder, you know, whether the people who feel like they are against the Ducks and the Beavers continuing this Civil War game, um, I wonder if you're going to change their minds at this juncture. Because it's like, I wonder if they're too entrenched and the emotions are still too new. It's almost like I feel like you're, you know, a parent telling their kid at dinner time, like, you got to eat your vegetables. There's a pragmatic reason. There's like, it's going to be good for you. You got to eat this. And it's like you've got kids that are saying, no, I, I, I'm not ready to eat that yet. I, and I don't want to eat that. And I don't want to ever eat that again. That's what it feels like to me. Emotion is a difficult thing to overcome. And and I don't blame people who are mad. If you're an Oregon State fan who is just hopping mad at the fact that the conference imploded and you look at Washington and you look at Oregon and you blame them, that's fine. I'm not going to talk you off of that position. I would say that, you know, if, uh, you know, the state legislature had not separated the boards for Oregon and Oregon State in what was 2011, I think that uh, the, the boards never would have voted to separate them and have one left behind. They never would have done that. They would have had a fiduciary duty to act in the best interest of both schools. But I think the board of trustees at the University of Oregon did what was best for the University of Oregon, and that's kind of what they're charged with. And it's unfortunate that it came down that way. I, I'm uh, upset that legislators didn't see that, or even the administrators at Oregon State didn't scramble in the 11th hour and kind of, you know, as the negotiations were ongoing, try to prepare for such a thing. Um, it's disappointing that the conference imploded. But all you can control now is what you can control. Like, you know, you're in the water. The Titanic has, has gone down. That's the conference. you got to find a way to survive if you're Oregon State. And you know what? I think they can. I think there is a path out of this. It's a, it's a narrow path, but there's a path out of this. And part of it is you need every dollar that you can possibly get your hands on, and having a home and home and home and home against Oregon that goes on in perpetuity is not a bad thing. Plus, it gives the rest of us an opportunity to see some of these regional rivalries continue. I want Oregon State to be part of major college football going forward. I think you do, too. You probably do. Need them to find the money. Need them to find a conference. Need them to find a way. And if football decides to splinter off into the haves and the have-nots, um, I want Oregon State and Oregon to both be with the halves. Coming up, Anna's 5 at 5. Leave it here. Anna, you mentioned uh, at the end of last hour that or you thought Oregon State fans or Oregon fans were like kids who were being asked to eat their vegetables. I didn't see vegetables as a bad thing growing up. I didn't, you know, I, and I didn't necessarily, like maybe my parents did one thing right. I should give them credit for that. Fist bump to mom and dad. I didn't, I was not one of those kids that viewed a vegetable as the enemy. You know, my dad, you know, if I can nitpick my parents for just a second, because I gave, I gave a pat on the back there. Now I can give a little criticism. My dad um, had an issue with barbecuing. He had an issue with barbecuing chicken in particular. He was afraid of food poisoning. I don't know what he read. I don't know if he knew someone who got food poisoning. I don't know if he, in a class in high school or college, he 
He uh, saw something that spooked him. But when my dad barbecued chicken, he would barbecue it until it was black on the outside and crispy and crusty and charbroiled and taste like a barbecue pit. And I can remember peeling off the skin to get to the actual chicken, and I didn't dare eat the charcoal that the skin had become. And uh, he always overcooked the chicken. He was, I think, a little bit afraid to get anybody sick. But, you know, to their credit, I ate vegetables. Maybe that's why I'm so spelt these days. You know, I've had the pleasure of eating your dad's barbecue chicken, and, uh, yeah, I can confirm that is exactly how he cooks it. Uh, yeah, it's funny, I, I didn't have a problem with vegetables either. I had more of a problem with uh, protein. I didn't like eating meat, so I would like, I would hide it everywhere around the house, which is really gross when you think about it. Like, my parents would find it tucked behind curtains and under rugs, and they would be like, what is this? And there would be like this dried piece of meat from uh, a month ago. Really, kind of gross, yum. Do you need to tell me, or is there, uh, is there like a hamburger sitting somewhere in a closet or something in this house like are you still hiding all of the protein that is on your plate at dinner time no i'm like making up for it now i'm all about protein now it's all i want to eat so all right are you ready to do the five at five let's do it the five at five the number one story as you see it uh, let's start with Coach Prime. With Coach Prime, uh, Deion Sanders landing the number one offensive line recruit in the country, committing to play for the Colorado Buffaloes, and hopefully, will create a season that doesn't allow for the second most quarterback sacks in the country. Jordan Seaton is an offensive tackle of IMG Academy in Florida. He announced his commitment today, but on the white Colorado cap. On a Fox show, he said he was impressed by how Sanders won a gold jacket as a Hall of Fame player and how the Buffs have two potential Heisman Trophy candidates on their roster. Yeah, you got to believe in Coach Prime. You know, having the opportunity to play with somebody who done it at the highest level, gold jacket level, um, many, very few can say they did that. You know, I got two Heisman candidates, you know, Shadir Sanders, Travis Hunter. You do. They're amazing. You know how they go. Um, yeah, man, and if you ain't walking with us and you say you're a dog and you, you claim you're a dog, why are you not coming to Colorado? There you go. Why are you not helping Recruiting. somebody who looks like you? Colorado needs an offensive line, and Coach Prime can recruit, and he's gone out and he's got this kid. He's got the number one offensive lineman, and the hope, I think, in Colorado is that more recruits will follow. I thought it was interesting what he said at the end there, and it is a recruiting pitch at Colorado. You have an African-American coach who is in a high-profile position, probably the most high-profile black man leading a program anywhere in the country. And I think you heard from an offensive tackle there. He said, why wouldn't you want to come help someone who looks like you do? And I think it's an interesting viewpoint, and it's an interesting selling point if you're the Colorado program. And, you know, I have heard over the years, and I've talked with players in programs that, you know, sometimes... People of color who are inside a program look around and maybe they're playing in a college town that is predominantly white and, you know, and they'll say, well, in the locker room, it's a more diverse place. Uh, if this is a comfort level, is this a recruiting pitch? Can you sell that if you're Deion Sanders? Absolutely. I mean, I think there was a fairly controversial article that came out um, when he first started getting headlines as the coach of Colorado. And it was basically, the headline was, is he 
black America's coach. And in the consequential, you know, conversations that we've had with people, um, I think he is. Like, I think you're seeing the black community in America go, hey, I want to get behind that guy because he's doing something different. He's unusual. There's not a lot of black head coaches in college football or in college athletics in general or professional athletics in general. And I think by far he is using that as a recruiting tool. And by the way, I think that kid's already got some coaching points on how to promote the Colorado program. He was doing that interview with sunglasses on and he was already getting like talking points that were clearly fed to him by Colorado and Coach Prime's team. Number two. All right, John Rahm leaving PGA for LIV. Uh, he is a two-time major champion who just won the Masters in April, and he is headed to the LIV Golf League. The official announcement uh, is not yet known, but he's traveled to New York City to finalize those details. Now, this makes for the second, well, let's see, the two of the 20, 2023 major championship winners, Brooks Kepka, won the PGA Championship and then the top three finishers at the Masters are now all part of LIV Golf. Sounds like uh, they're offering him a big payday and the phrase generational wealth is being thrown around. I had three things that immediately popped into my mind all at the same time. Number one, I remember Rom last spring saying that he his heart was with the PGA Tour and somebody asked him, what if they offer you $400 million? And he said, you know, that won't change it one bit. Well, now they've offered him $600 million, apparently and his mind has been changed. Secondarily, I thought these two tours had settled their differences. I thought they had partnered up. Am I the only one that is going, what? I thought you guys were okay with each other. Thirdly, I don't think golf fans care anymore. I think that ship has sailed. I think as long as the best golfers are playing in the majors, which are the events that everybody watches, everybody's going to be fine. Number three. All right, did you hear about this crazy story with the Jacksonville Jaguars? A manager of financial planning and analysis. That sounds as interesting as it could be. His name is Amit Patel. He is accused of exploiting the team's virtual credit card program to purchase, let's list this off, a condo, a new Tesla Model 3, a Nissan pickup truck when he doesn't feel like driving the Tesla, and a $95,000 watch. He is, in all, accused of stealing $22 million from the team. How does this happen? But, oh, there's an oversight issue with the Jaguars in this program, and, but secondarily, I'm fascinated by his his uh, shopping spree that he went on. A Nissan truck? Come on, you couldn't, have, you couldn't have gone for a Ford? Number four. All right, Caitlin Clark in a league of her own. She is one of one. We saw this last night. Uh, number of players in Division One men's or women's basketball history with more than 3,000 points, more than 750 rebounds, and more than 750 assists. There is one name on that list, and her name is Caitlin Clark with Iowa. Good for her. Fun to watch her. I watched the highlights last night on SportsCenter. Uh, I'm hoping she gets out to the Portland Regional. We get a chance to see her up close. She was in Regional last year in Seattle. Portland's got the women's regional this year, hoping to see Iowa get there. Number five. And staying in the Midwest, Michigan is finalizing a not-so-small contract offer for Jim Harbaugh amid potential NFL interests. Uh, 
this is obviously being leaked out. They're talking about a $55 million deal. It would make him the highest paid coach in the Big Ten and second highest paid in college football overall behind Alabama's Nick Saban. I find it interesting that Harbaugh has been spending a lot of time lately getting out about how players should share in the wealth, share in the success. Something tells me he saw this coming. Appreciate everybody who made this show part of their day. Grab a podcast. Read me at johnconzano.com. I really appreciate everybody who is already subscribed. If you're not subscribed, grab a free subscription or a paid subscription. Whatever works for you works for me. I've been telling people this holiday season, the sports fan in your life, uh, if you want to give them a gift, you can do a gift subscription to johnconzano.com as a uh, Christmas stocking stuffer or a Christmas gift for the favorite sports fan in your life. All right, we are uh, back tomorrow with another fun show. Uh, We will start to really dive into the Sugar Bowl matchup between Washington and Texas and the Rose Bowl matchup between Michigan and Alabama. Who you got in those? Tweet at me, at John Canzano BFT, and tune in to tomorrow's show. We'll have a great time. We're going to have big guests. We'll have a lot of fun, as we always do. All right, I always tell you at the end of the show, uh, we're not here for a long time, just a good time. And that's true. The show goes fast when we are having the most fun. Um, all right, coming up, Thursday night football. Who you got? Steven, who you got? He's nodding. Thumbs up. Who you, both teams? The over? Under? I don't know. Catch it.